from the Credit Union National Association. This is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people. Credit Union ideas. We continue our pre-conference interviews with some of the speakers addressing the 2021 CUNA Governmental Affairs Conference. This year's GAC takes place virtually from Tuesday, March 2nd to Thursday, March 4th, and will retain the key elements of the in-person conference, including breakout sessions, opportunities to connect with lawmakers, business leaders, and credit union peers, and, of course, thought-provoking speakers. I am Casey Mishlevy, Deputy Editor with CUNA News. In this episode of the CUNA News Podcast, we'll hear from former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, and former Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel, who will participate in a point-counterpoint discussion at GAC. We'll also discuss how healthcare policies drive innovation, such as the coronavirus or COVID-19 vaccine, with former Food and Drug Administration Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. To learn more about these speakers, visit news.cuna.org. While Donald Trump lost the 2020 presidential election, Chris Christie believes November 3rd was a good day for Republicans overall. That's because the GOP added seats in the House and gained a governorship, he says. Christie is the former New Jersey governor and a 2016 presidential candidate. Deputy Editor Bill Merrick speaks with Christie about what surprised him during the 2020 election, the future of the post-Trump Republican Party, and the events of January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. What are your biggest takeaways from the 2020 election? Well, first off, it was a personal loss at the top of the ticket. I don't think when you look at all the results that you can say there was anything other than that. This was a rejection by a sector of the electorate that voted for him in 2016 of Donald Trump. Because when you look at the rest of the ticket down, the Republicans really had a very good day added all those seats in the House, we're within five votes now of a majority in the House, flipped two state legislative chambers, flipped the governorship, the only governorship to flip that evening. So it was a good night for the Republican Party. And quite frankly, if the president had behaved himself in the aftermath of the election, we would still you know, be running the Senate, in my view, and that Georgia was lost most particularly because of the conduct of the president. And so, you know, it was a personal kind of loss. And I think the party has a lot to build on but we've got to get our act together. You always look the worst after you lose an election. And so the party looks bad right now, and everyone is you know, singing the, uh, the hymn of despair. I'm not one of those. I think the party is in very good shape. I think the Biden administration will overreach, as every Democratic administration has done in the last 30 years when they've come into office. And so Bill Clinton and Barack Obama both lost their majorities at their first midterm and never got them back because they were pursuing policies that were out of step with the mainstream of the American people. So I suspect that's what's going to happen again. What surprised you most about the election? The turnout. Turnout was extraordinary. I mean, when you talk about a guy who got more votes than any presidential candidate in history and still lost by 7 million votes, that's pretty amazing. And so, you know, the turnout was the biggest thing that surprised me about the election was the enormous participation, even in light of COVID, that happened all over the country. How likely is it that Donald Trump will run for president in 2024? 
I've been friends with Donald Trump for 20 years, and what I can tell you is anybody who tries to uh, make a living predicting what he will do will be poor pretty quickly. I don't have the first idea. I do think that there is not a real tradition, with the exception of Grover Cleveland, of folks losing the presidency and coming back to being a viable candidate for winning it. So I, I, don't, I think history works against him, but history worked against him all the way through. So I, I don't know. I think that uh, that's something that also is going to be determined a lot by what his life is like the next few years and what he wants to do with his life and all the outside forces that will be attempting to influence his life from law enforcement and other places. What do you see for the post-Trump Republican Party and what will be some of the keys to success for the party going forward? We have to continue to talk about the things that the majority of the country cares about. They want us to not raise taxes. They want us to continue to spur economic growth through regulatory relief. They want us to fix our education system in this country and make it more effective for everybody um, and return parental choice to the center of what we do in our educational system. Um, they're going to want us to stand up to China. It's very clear now that China is not a friend, they're an adversary. And we need to stand up to them and be tougher on China all the way throughout, in my view. And they're going to want that because that also protects American jobs and the American economy. So those are some of the things that I think we should be focusing on and talking about and I think are very important for the country's future. Do you think there are opportunities for Democrats and Republicans to find common ground? I think there are. I hope that the president tries to find common ground with Republicans on this COVID package and not just trying to jam it through with only Democrats. I think infrastructure, an infrastructure deal needs to be done to improve America's infrastructure, and I think that's a place where you could find common ground as well. So those are two areas right off the bat that I think you could find common ground on, and that the president should look to force common ground. You'll be participating in a session at CUNA's Governmental Affairs Conference with Rahm Emanuel. On what do you and Rahm agree, and where do you part ways? <laughs> we don't have enough time in this interview, uh, Bill, to talk about all the places we part ways. But I think Rahm and I both take a very practical approach to government. We approach it from different philosophical bents, but he having been a mayor, me being a governor, we want to get things done. And we want to bring people together to get things done. And I think we also both have very strong feelings about the way you should conduct yourself in office. And the fact that it's a public trust, you should conduct yourself that way. And so I think those are two areas that we have a lot of common ground on. And I think also we've both been very, very clear-eyed in terms of our interactions with the union movement, especially public sector unions, to remind them that their first obligation is to serve the people who pay their salaries. What message would you like to offer credit union leaders who will be attending the conference? Listen, I'm a credit union customer and member. I think that the liquidity that they add to the marketplace to regular everyday Americans is absolutely indispensable in our economic system. And I think you have to continue to be pushing hard against excessive regulation of what you do, which will cut down on your ability to be able to help everyday Americans afford to buy cars, to buy homes, to improve their homes, to help fund their child's education. All those things are really important roles that credit unions play. I know it personally. My home was financed through a credit union. And so I, I know how important it is to have the credit unions out there doing what they do. And they can't do it if they're over-regulated and micromanaged from Washington, D.C. So I think the power of CUNA 
is to be making sure they make the argument that CUNA serves the credit needs of everyday Americans, and they need to be freed up to do that. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I would just say, listen, a little comment about January 6th. Uh, It was an awful day in American history, and everyone who played a role in it wears a cape of disgrace for what happened. But I'm not one of those people who, who then has become pessimistic about our democracy. In fact, I'm very optimistic about our democracy. Look at what happened. We had a violent mob storm the Capitol, and by that evening, order was restored. The House and the Senate were back on the floor confirming the democratically elected President of the United States and Vice President, and we did not have any type of disturbance at the President's inauguration. We kept people safe, and we had the peaceful transfer of power. Joe Biden, who was not my choice, is sitting in the Oval Office today, and I support him being there. And we need to remember that what the last number of weeks showed is the fragility of democracy, but the strength of our constitutional system. And um, I will tell you this, I've thrown some big thank yous up to our founders for the extraordinary system that they bequeathed us. And we should not be pessimistic about our country's future. We should be optimistic. Rahm Emanuel, former Chicago mayor and a former White House chief of staff, says he's confident that with a new makeup, Congress can find bipartisanship on more issues that can move the economy forward. Senior editor Ron Jost speaks with Emanuel, who shares his thoughts on specific areas where he thinks Congress can work together. Mayor, what were your biggest takeaways from the uh, 2020 election, both the presidential and the congressional? Well, I I mean, there's a lot of different takeaways, depending on how you want to look at it. One takeaway, I mean, on some demographics, the difference between 2020 and 2016, when you narrow it down to its core, is that the suburbs went in 2016 kind of more aligned with the Republican Party to 2020, where they were more aligned with the Democratic Party. And that's true also of 2018. So I think that's the biggest kind of demographic switch that happens. Second is I think that uh, our party, the Democratic Party, had a battle in the primary between the reform wing and the revolutionary wing, and the reform wing won. And the revolution wing has gone along with it. The Republican Party is in the middle right now and was then and is now in the middle of a battle between the conservative wing and the conspiratorial wing, and the conspiratorial wing is winning. Were there any big surprises for you in the election? You know, I think where Biden beat Trump, he has the fewest coattails of any presidential winner in modern times. And I got to be honest, you know, I'm happy we have obviously the House and the Senate. But when you really look at below the presidential, it's hard to call it a mandate. We obviously won in Georgia, et cetera. We won in Arizona. We won in Colorado. But if you look at the state houses, you look at the gubernatorial, you look at the House, you look at the Senate, it was a closer election than I thought it would be. I have my theories about why, but when you say, what are you surprised at, that, you know, it was a bit surprising because I thought, given what was going on in the country, given what uh, COVID, national elections are national elections, and it didn't have really that national feel. And as a former White House chief of staff, what advice would you give President Biden on succeeding with his agenda? I actually think Biden's people 
I think they're doing really well. You know, one measure, AP has them at 61%. 61% in this context, this environment is really strong. Two, I think they're using him effectively. They're not overusing him. We just had a president that was way too much in our lives. They're being more economic with the use of the president. They're not overexposing him. They're not underexposing him. It's just the right amount. And when he has something to say, he's the deliverer of it. Third, they're very focused, getting their hands around COVID and getting the economy working for working families. You could talk about different things. You're interviewing me in the middle of the reconciliation package. I have views on how to handle those things. But I think basically they're on target. Where do you think Democrats and Republicans can find common ground? I think it's pretty clear not both parties are the same distance from the center. As I said to you a little earlier, our party went through a debate and the reform wing won, not the revolutionary. I'm not sure that's true about the Republican Party. So they're not equal distance from what one would call the center of gravity in ideological terms. Second is, do you remember when Trump in the middle of COVID, his CARES Act for $2.2 trillion? In the House, it was 419 to 6. In the Senate, it was 96 to 0. Here we are with COVID. The employment numbers just came out. It's clear the economy is still struggling. And we've got to get our hands around getting this vaccine distributed. And we're fighting around. I mean, those numbers show Democrats, even though Democrats didn't like Donald Trump a lot. But yet they voted for something that required the nation to respond. Here you have a new president, his first agenda item. And the Republican comments are, well, forget about it. So it's an illustration of a point that both parties are not only not equal distance from the center, they don't have the same sense that when the country's in a crisis, how you may put partisan divisions aside and work together. I think the 10 Republicans that came, I think the lion's share of them, I know a number of them, care about trying to figure out if they can do something together, work together. If you paired minimum wage with a small business package as a joint you can get bipartisanship there. The child tax credit, you can get bipartisanship. I think on the infrastructure, you can get bipartisanship. So there's a number of areas I think you can work together on. Do you have any advice for credit union leaders about working effectively with uh, legislators and policymakers? You got to stay in front of your local legislator. Tell them not just who you are, but what you do. And they should have a real sense about the businesses you lend to the consumers you lend to and you know what you guys do in the neighborhood the communities and how you are an economic engine to the overall constituencies or district that they represent but let me say it this way don't just call when you have a crisis Senior editor Ron Jose also speaks with Dr. Scott Gottlieb, whose GAC presentation will highlight how healthcare policies drive innovation, such as the COVID-19 vaccine, and the impact of vaccine access on credit unions' frontline staff. Gottlieb says that along with a growing list of vaccines, the U.S. has more resiliency in fighting COVID-19. He's hopeful the country can return to some semblance of normalcy by the summer of 2021. What are the best precautions that employers can take to safeguard their employees? I think it really depends on the environment. I think when we're looking at, you know, a sort of higher prevalence environment, thinking about the fall, which is when I think a lot of employers are going to be thinking about bringing people back into an office environment. 
I think focusing on air quality, the quality of the air in indoors, making sure that you have good filtration is going to be important. I think still trying to de-densify the office if possible, if we're in a high prevalence environment. My estimation is that prevalence is going to really decline in the spring and summer. Some businesses are going to restart office-based work. They'll bring people back into the office in a low prevalence environment. But once we get into a higher prevalence environment, even though people will probably be vaccinated or many people will be vaccinated, I think we're still going to have to be more mindful of the risk of respiratory pathogens and the spread of respiratory pathogens in the winter than we've been in the past. I mean, we've been far too complacent about the spread of flu in the wintertime. That was wrong. Far too many people get sick from the flu. It's a big drag on productivity. I think we're going to need to treat the risk of respiratory pathogens differently in the wintertime now that we have the twin threats of flu and COVID that are going to circulate, even in an environment where people get vaccinated. And so trying to reduce density where we can, have meetings that are smaller, have people on Zoom where possible, trying to look at the air quality in the office. I don't think that we're going to necessarily be wearing masks after most people get vaccinated, but I do think we're going to have to be more mindful. And the other piece of that is also making sure people don't come to work sick. So putting in place symptoms checkers, we might do that on a daily basis when we're in a really high prevalence environment, have people log on and just verify that they don't have any symptoms, they haven't had any exposures, and then encouraging people to stay home and get tested if they do have symptoms. In the past, it was always perceived as noble to go to work if you had the sniffles. It wasn't looked down upon. I think in the future, it's going to really be frowned upon coming to work if you don't feel well. Should employers have their workers work remote if possible? When we're into a, a high prevalence environment, I think workplaces are going to think about those things. And I don't know where the threshold is. And we might not have this perfectly worked out going into the fall and the winter of 2021 and 2022. This might be something that it takes a couple of cycles before we sort of work out what is the new normal. But I think when you're dealing with an environment where this is going to be epidemic again, and then probably at some point will spread widely, we won't have an epidemic on the order of what we just experienced. And when we do have spread, it's going to be against the backdrop of more normal activity. I mean, the reason why we're probably going to have a lot of COVID this fall and winter, or at least in the wintertime, is because we're going to be out and about and doing things. We're not going to be hunkered down anymore like we've been this past winter. But when you're in that environment where this is becoming epidemic and is spreading widely in certain parts of the country, and it's probably going to be regional at first, I think businesses are going to have to think about, you know, what do we do for the next four weeks until prevalence declines? And that might include trying to have more people telecommute and trying to de-densify the office. I think that's ultimately what it's going to look like. The new normal is going to be that we implement certain measures depending on what the prevalence is, but we wait for that moment when prevalence starts to creep up and then try to de-densify offices, try to have people work from home. You know, one example is boards. I think the winter board meetings are probably going to be Zoom. I suspect board meetings are going to go back into being in person this summer, but then that December board meeting that every company had that could very well be a Zoom meeting for the next couple of years until we work out COVID. And what can we learn from this pandemic that will help us prepare for the next one? I think we lacked resiliency in the system. We lacked capacity. The most obvious was around diagnostic testing. And it wasn't just our inability to deploy a diagnostic test in a timely fashion, but we really didn't have the platforms to be able to run a diagnostic test for a novel respiratory pathogen at scale. We always anticipated the next pandemic would be from influenza, and we always anticipated that the existing test for flu would be sufficient to differentiate a pandemic strain of flu. Plus, testing for flu isn't as important because 
the incubation period is so short that you don't really have the ability to use case-based interventions like testing and tracing as a way to cut down on spread. Because as soon as you diagnose someone, they've been contagious for a period of time and they've spread it already. But with coronavirus, where the incubation period was longer, you had the opportunity to use case-based interventions as a way to try to cut down on spread. But our inability to field a diagnostic test really sort of robbed us of the opportunity to do that and allowed the country to get seated very heavily with the virus before we knew it. And then once we knew we had the virus circulating, we couldn't target the mitigation to parts of the country where the virus was spreading widely because, again, we didn't have a diagnostic test to tell what parts of the country that was. So when do you think that Americans can expect to gather without broad restrictions, travel freely and visit friends and family in relative safety? I think this summer, I think people are going to be getting back to some semblance of normal life late spring and in the summertime. I think this should be a relatively quiescent summer. And B117, the UK variant, does change the equation a little bit because it's a more contagious variant. I think prevalence is probably going to be higher this summer than it otherwise would have been without that introduction of that variant. But I do think people are going to get back to some semblance of normal activity. There's a lot of pent up demand for it. So I think people are going to go out, yeah. you know, regardless. But I think things should be relatively quiescent this summer. Vulnerable people will be getting vaccinated, so they'll feel more confident going out. The risk is really to the fall and probably more to the winter. I think you're likely to see prevalence start to creep up as we get into the later fall and into the winter. You know, and I think next year is going to look something like a really bad flu season. So tragically, we might have 60,000 deaths, 80,000 deaths from COVID over the course of the 2021, 2022 fall winter season, which is a really bad flu season. But that'll be against the backdrop of, you know, people resuming some semblance of normal activity. And so virus is going to spread against that backdrop. We're not going to be in our homes hunkered down like we've been over the past year. What do you think the new normal will look like? Yeah, I think it's going to look like some mix of what we've talked about. I think it's going to be an environment where we aren't complacent about the risk of respiratory pathogens in the winter, where respiratory precautions become a routine part of life. And so what is that? I think people are going to wear masks more in public. It won't be, I'm not going to say it's going to be fashionable to wear a mask, but it certainly won't be frowned upon. Right now, there was a great study that if you wore a mask in public like two years ago or three years ago before COVID, people would stay away from you because you were perceived as maybe being infectious with something. Why else would you be wearing a mask? I think now you're going to see masks in airports and stuff like that. I think businesses are going to think about not having events in December. You know, everyone had to have the holiday party and the last board meeting and the last conference in December before the holidays. I think probably December might be a little bit of a quieter month from a work standpoint where we're not bringing together groups as much as we did. I think we're going to look at HVAC systems and air quality indoors. I think we're going to look at making sure there are MERV filters in place and better air quality, better circulation. I think that's going to be something that gets advertised. I think restaurants are going to probably advertise that their staff's been vaccinated or their staff wears uh, masks in the wintertime to try to make customers feel comfortable about coming back in. So there's going to be this overlay of respiratory safety on top of our normal activity. But I think a lot of normal activity is going to return with that heightened vigilance. And that vigilance will decline over time as we get more and more years under our belt. But some of it may never go away. I mean, some of it may be that we have a culture now that when you sneeze and you look like you have a low-grade fever, everyone takes a step back and you're told to go home. 
we probably should have been there already. I mean, look at how many people get infected and die from the flu each year. This is a completely preventable illness. We have treatments for the flu. We have vaccines for the flu. We know, look at how sensitive flu is to the precautions we're taking to prevent coronavirus. I mean, the masks and everything else we're doing, the distancing has reduced the incidence of coronavirus, but has dramatically reduced the incidence of flu, which what it tells us is just with simple precautions that we could have been taking all along, we could have sharply cut the rate of flu spread, but we didn't. We were complacent about flu and we shouldn't have been. I think the twin productivity hit to businesses of a flu season and a COVID season is going to be substantial enough that it's going to be worth some financial investment to reduce the incidence of respiratory pathogens generally. The productivity impact of flu is substantial when you look at some of the economic analyses. And now you layer on COVID to that. And I think it's going to be so costly that businesses are going to have to be more vigilant around respiratory health in the winter. To hear more from this year's GAC speakers, check out our previous episode featuring interviews with author, speaker, and social change agent Kevin Carroll, former U.S. National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, and award-winning journalist, documentarian, and author Soledad O'Brien. Starting March 1st, you can follow CUNA News coverage of GAC at news.cuna.org GAC. And to register for the conference, visit cuna.org GAC. We'll see you there. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher Radio.